Good morning. If you have a Bible, I would invite you to turn to the Old Testament book of Daniel, chapter 1, and page 625 in our church Bibles, if that would be of some help to you. Daniel chapter 1, we're going to begin our studies verse by verse through the book of Daniel. We just completed, as most of you know, 1 Corinthians, um, and now here we are, Daniel. Just one quick um, announcement, just to remind you, um, next Sunday, Lord willing, we're going to have our newcomer's lunch at the end of this second service. So if you're new to West Cohasset and you've never enjoyed the company of some people and having a breaking bread together, then just keep that in mind. We'd love to see you. Newcomer's lunch directly following the um, second service. And all you bring is yourself and appetite. And we'll take care of the rest. Okay, we're going to read actually the whole chapter of Daniel chapter 1. Let's hear the word of the Lord. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his gods in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring in some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men, without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that they were to enter the king's service. Among these were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, chief official gave them new names to Daniel, the name Belshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Now, God had caused the official to show favor and sympathy to Daniel, but the official told Daniel, I am afraid of my lord, the king, who, was, who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard whom the chief officials had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them in, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. And every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there 
until the first year of King Cyrus. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word this morning and may God grant us understanding of it. Let's bow together and pray and seek the help that we need. Our God and Father, we pray that you would make this book live in us, that you would show us ourselves within your word and show us yourself and show us our Savior and make this book live in us for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, I suspect that we are long past the old days of uh, Jerry Falwell and the moral majority and all that was said would be achieved as a result of their planning and campaigning and organizing in America. We're long past those days. And for better or worse, and sometimes I think for better, I'm going to suggest to you that the secular wind of society for which a long time was a tailwind to the Christian church is increasingly becoming a headwind. And so I would equally hope that we're long past the days, at least those of you that have sat here week by week, we're long past the days of thinking that we can fashion a life of heaven on earth so that if we try hard enough and pray hard enough and save long enough and add to that the right guy or the right girl in the Oval Office, then things will just be perfect all the time. We ought to... We ought to be way past those days because maybe, maybe at the heart of so many of our frustrations and our anxieties is that we think that everything has to be perfect for us now to be okay. And if it's not perfect now, then I'm not going to be okay. But I think in all this, more and more of us are coming to the realization that This broken, sinful world in which we live in is not actually our home. It's not our home. And this broken, sinful world that we live in is going to remain a broken and sinful world until Jesus returns. So we're not supposed to be planning and settling down here like this is all there is. We're not supposed to be treating the world like other people treat it as if this is all there is. No. Now, there may be some who think that can change this broken, sinful world, and we respect and we honor their passion. And there may be some who live in a pretend world of heaven on earth, and so they opt out of every one of their responsibilities, and then they're just a little cocoon. Everything is perfect, so they think everything is like heaven on earth. And therefore, assimilation to the world and its bent is the order of the day. Because on occasion, many of us will have friends and they'll tell us, oh, we better live it up now because this is all there is. But of course, we would say to them, no, 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 this is not all there is. There there is a day which awaits every one of us when we will stand before the God who made us. And when we actually grasp this, when we actually grasp that the then of heaven is more important than the now of earth, that the then of heaven is bigger than the now of earth, Then and only then will we begin to understand what Peter wrote in 1 Peter 1 to the scattered believers of his day where the headwinds of the secular world were like hurricane force winds. So it wasn't their best life now. They were taking a beat down because of their devotion to Jesus. So Peter writes, verse 17, live out your time here as foreigners, strangers, exiles, refugees, immigrants, In reverence to God. In other words, don't be so tied to things here. And 
if we have not removed ourselves from the responsibility of taking Jesus into the public square, then we'll be able to understand his words that he said in John's gospel. I think it was around chapter 8. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. This is why the world hates you. Okay, so hates us because of Jesus. Not because we're behaving like idiots. Not because we're snooty, we're, we're horrible workers, or we're bigots, or we're holier than thou. No, they hate us because of our devotion and affection to Jesus. Now, I say all that stuff purposely as we begin our, our studies in the book of Daniel for this reason. Some people like the book of Daniel because what it reveals about the future. So the juices get flowing and the heart starts pumping a little bit faster and they get out their charts and they get out their measuring sticks and, and they store up even more canned goods and they buy even more generators and, and gold coins for the end. And some people like Daniel because they like the idea of daring to be a Daniel. And of course, we, we couldn't do much better than, than imitating Daniel. I was reminded this week when my son first was born for the long, long time, a long, long time, I had this prayer. Father, please make my son Jared more like Jesus and more like Daniel. Those are the two names I said, more like Jesus and more like Daniel. However, even in the opening chapter, and this is our first point this morning, if we just do a quick read and we have some sharp thinking, we would come to the conclusion pretty quickly that without God's grace, Daniel, no matter how terrific Daniel was, Daniel would be done. He'd be done. Now stay with me. First, a quick read. Verse 9. Do you see it there if your Bible's open? Now God caused the official to show favor and sympathy to Daniel. Okay, Daniel didn't do that. If there's no God acting, then there's no official favoring. Verse 17. God gave knowledge and understanding, and Daniel was given the ability to understand visions and dreams. And that's going to be a lifesaver in chapter 2. And again, Daniel didn't do that. Who did that? God did that. Why did God do that? One word. It's God's standard operating procedure. Grace. Grace. In fact, verse 9, God caused. Verse 17, God gave. Both of the same Hebrew word. Literally, God set it inside of them. Here's the point. Without God's grace, Daniel is of no consequence. And by chapter 2, the book is done. Because he's dead. Because he doesn't know how to interpret Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And do you not think that Jesus might have said the same kind of thing when he preached himself from Daniel to his disciples, a la Luke 24. Remember, he preached the gospel from the Old Testament. And I suspect when he got to the book of Daniel, he said something like this. You see, guys, God only saves his people by his grace. If God's grace wasn't abounding, Daniel would be nothing. Just like you, just like me. This is how God rescues people. This is how God saves people. Grace. Grace. That's the quick read. Now let's just do a little bit of sharp thinking. Let's just take ourselves back a little bit further. Uh, before verse 1, chapter 1. God had to choose Daniel's people Israel. God had to choose Daniel's family. And God had to set them in their high place for such a time as this. And God had to give Daniel all those attributes. Verse 4, which appealed to the flesh of the pagan king. And why did God do this? Because he chose to give Daniel his grace. So it wasn't like this. Well, you just look at Daniel. Look at that guy. He's the kind of young man that would catch a God's eye. See, we're not told any of that. It's too much uh, 
It's what's, what's actually, it's contextualization, but that, we'll save that for another time. Sorry, it just popped in my mind. <laughs> in other words, the, the, sorry, the word of God gives no indication that because Daniel was a good boy, that's why God chose him. I mean, is that grace? You got to do some stuff and then God gives grace? That's not grace. Let me ask you this. Did God choose Paul the apostle because he was a good boy? No, he was a very, very bad boy. Therefore, while information about the end is helpful and Daniel's example is something to admire, the more I study this book, the more I study these opening chapters, the more I see, and I believe Daniel would want it this way, the more I see the focus is not Daniel, but it's the God that Daniel worshipped. So the book doesn't give us like a strategy to deal with living in an exile, as an exile in the world. So much as it gives us comfort and it gives us courage to understand that the God who had all the events of 605 BC working out to his accord, working according to his plan, he can be trusted. And he's the same God who's the God of his people now and he's overseeing all the events of 2016 AD. So 605 BC, 2016 AD, same gracious God. He never changes. The hymn writer puts it wonderfully. God is working his purposes out as year succeeds to year. Even an election year? Of course. So here's the central theme of the book. And it's so important that if you look at the back of your worship folder, I put it down there because I didn't want any of us to miss it. And I might keep it there for a long, long time. It's a very bottom thing. And this is, this is the central theme of the book. Calm down and do your duty. Hold to the line and take great courage because no matter what, right? No matter what, your God is powerful and your God is sovereign. And therefore, even in the face of difficult circumstances which seem against you, you can trust him completely. Now, when I wrote down those words, it was pretty easy for me to think that I can't help but to think that God will use this for many of us as we work through this book beginning with myself. Calm down. Do your duty. Hold to the line. Take great courage no matter what. Because your God is powerful. And your God is sovereign. And therefore even in the face of, of difficult circumstances. Which would seem against you. You can trust him. Completely. You see faith in this book for Daniel and his friends. Faith is not believing in spite of the evidence. Here's what it is. Faith is obeying despite the consequence. Obeying despite the consequence, which, which is central to our lives. If we're going to have a meaningful, effective Christian life in our day, obey despite the consequence. That's point number one. That's a quick read and some sharp thinking. That's essentially theology. Second point then, the time and place, a little bit of history. So we're given some markers, aren't we? In the opening verses and at the end of this chapter, historical markers. And what they do is establish for us both the time and a place. The time, the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah. In other words, around 606, 605 BC. We'll be more exact um, later on. Six centuries then before the birth of Christ. The place was essentially two. One, we would understand uh, as Babylon, uh, modern day Iraq. And the other, of course, Jerusalem. And what we find here is that what the prophets had been warning God's people for centuries, it's finally happened. God's people had been told again and again over the centuries 
prophets preaching the word. You can read this for homework. Isaiah 24, Jeremiah 34, 1 Kings 11. That's just a few. The preachers would preach, stop ignoring God's law. Stop neglecting God's Sabbath. Stop your devotion to false gods. Don't confuse God's patience with your sins as God God accepting your sins. So you're going to need to repent because there's coming a judgment if you don't repent. And it's going to be horrible. And of course, it was horrible. The Babylonians were known for horrible, horrible treatment in many places and times. So one of my commentaries said this, the entire situation seemed to be one of infinite despair for the people of God. So the people of God, they just failed to believe God and they failed to obey God. And they were stuck in their unbelief and they were stuck in their disobedience. They didn't obey God's law. They didn't worship God the way that he told them to. They neglected the Sabbath or did their own thing on the Sabbath. This wonderful principle of six years you work the land, one year you rest the land. They never obeyed that. I just wanted to show them that I really do love you and I'm really care for you. And I'm going to give you essentially a year off. They never did that. And therefore, the 70 years of captivity of God's people, which is how long God's people here in this exile will be held captive, The 70 years was simply God claiming the Sabbath, which Israel had neglected. Can you imagine that? God was serious about a Sabbath. Every one of these years they missed, in essence, God was saying, you're going to have to pay back. 70 years in exile. And of course, God used a nation, a a wicked nation, far more wicked than Israel, to execute his judgment. Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar then comes into Jerusalem All guns a-blazing, if you would. And it's a pretty easy takeover. Verse 2, because the Lord delivered the king of Judah there into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. And he even delivered the vessels of the house of God. And they were carried off to the temple of his God, Nebuchadnezzar's God, in Babylon. And put the treasures in his house. And so what the writer is telling, specifically his original audience, who'd be reading this, and they're like, in captivity... He's saying, hey, guys, pay attention. Verse 2, opening line. It was actually the Lord who gave Nebuchadnezzar his victory. God did this. In fact, you can't see it in the English, but it sticks out in the Hebrew. Verse 2, verse 9, verse 17, the same root word, anathan, is the Hebrew word. God is the one who set these things in order. God is the one behind all of this. God gave Nebuchadnezzar his victory. God gave Daniel his favor. Favor. God gave Daniel his interpretation skills. So the writer is letting us know, this is a picture we're going to have to get. Though it would seem like the gods of Babylon are stronger than the gods of Abraham, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I mean, who was losing? And who was winning? And how do we usually view things when someone's winning and someone's losing? No, let the story go on. Let me tell it to you clean. Let me tell you tell you the story from the eyes of heaven. God is actually in control more than you understand. And that's not the same thing as saying this. Everybody lives. Everybody's happy. And there's going to be a happy ending on earth to this story. Clearly, it was not a happy ending for many of God's people, especially those of the lower class. And we can't forget that. But it is to say, since God is in control of these events, verse 2, God delivered Jehoiakim into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. 
God is responsible for the defeat of his own city. God is responsible for the defeat of his own people. Yet since he's God, he can be trusted. He can be trusted. Now, when I got to that verse, something popped in my head. And I said, go check Acts chapter 2. Okay? So there's a translation called the Septuagint. The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And this is what I wondered. I said, I wonder if the same word that was used in verse 2, 9, and 17 in Daniel 1 is the same word in Acts 2, which described Jesus, the perfect one, who was delivered into the hands of wicked and cruel men so that they would nail him to the cross. And guess what? Exact same word. Exact same word. Here's the point. It seems like God's pattern is often, in the big things at least, this. Deliver his chosen people over to evil people to execute his judgment and yet save the world. Let's follow that line. Deliver his chosen son over to evil people, the wicked Romans, and at that time the wicked Jewish people, to execute his judgment, a man on the cross to die for sins, and yet save the world. Romans 11. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. Who does that? Well, apparently the God who made heaven and earth, the one God who is over all, he does that. And of course, it's a lot easier to say and hear, if we're not going through anything and say, amen, than it is to be in the thick of it and say something like Jesus said on the cross, oh God, why? Why have you left me? So the original audience, the people in exile, this is what they're being told in essence. Calm down. Do your duty. Hold to the line. Take great courage because your God is powerful and your God is sovereign. And therefore, even in the face of difficult circumstances which seem against you, we can trust him completely. And for those of you who know your Bible, you'll see the text note in the NIV, verse 2. You see a little letter there. If you follow it down, it says, the land of Shinar. What's the land of Shinar? Well, that's Genesis 11. The Tower of Babel was built where? In the land of Shinar. And the Tower of Babel was man essentially saying this, you're not sovereign God. We will show you who's really in charge. We're going to build a kingdom. It's going to be great. We're going to build it right up to the heaven. And we're going to show you that we can take care of things down here. Our way. You're not sovereign. In fact, we might be sovereign. And now here we are a few thousand years later. Nebuchadnezzar is doing the same thing. Open up a history book. Read your newspaper. That's pretty much the three, the theme of a whole of human history. I am the master of my fate, says man. I am the master of my fate. There is no sovereign God who works everything out to his appointed end. Now let's be sensible and let's be thoughtful here. Okay? Even in that cry, as defiant as it is, there's a lot of people in our world that are crying out for stuff. We want unity, they say. We want freedom. A Tuesday morning, I was listening to NPR radio. There was a Syrian teacher. And remember Syria, four and a half years of civil war, seven million people displaced. And he's a passionate man. And at the very end of his talk, he says, I want to be free. 
And it just, it just broke your heart. We want unity. We want freedom. We want everybody to matter. And no matter what your bents are, we want to be accepted. And some of us need help. And I need to know that I'm going to be okay. And loved ones, I have no trouble with their cries. They're my cries. But this is what happens. Man as man runs to all kinds of places. And they run to all kinds of people to seek out those things. But Jesus essentially says, listen to me. I have all those things in the cross. In Christ, all are one. In Christ, all matter. In Christ, everyone is accepted through repentance and faith. And you'll be cared for. And you, you will see that no matter what happens on earth, you're going to be okay. I mean, I mean, what is 70 or 80 or even 90 years on earth compared to eternity? You see? You're going to be okay, not just for that long, but forever. Point number one, a quick read and some sound thinking theology. Point number two, the time and place A little bit of history. Judah is soundly defeated. Their God seems defeated. All his people and all the nice stuff. Someplace else. Yet we find out that God is behind it all. Verse 3 for point 3. Let me just see it there. If your Bible's open, then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's services some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. You see it there. Young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well informed, and so on. In other words, this is our third point, just bring in the cream of the crop. Just, just bring in the best of the best, right? Now, I want you to listen carefully because this needs to be said in the open air. This, verses 3 and verse 4, this is the pagan mind. This is not the mind of God. This is not how God chooses. This is pretty much how the world works. This is pretty much the stuff that appeals to the flesh. You know, no physical defect. Handsome. You know, aptitude. Quick. On their feet. Qualified. It's like Tom Cruise, maybe, right? Right to the front of the line. Now listen, there is nothing wrong with any of these characteristics, I mean, this is not a disqualifier to be chosen by God. I just want none of us to think, okay, this is God's way. So the people say, okay, kids, and maybe even some adults, okay, if I'm going to dare to be a Daniel, then I'm going to get things fixed up out here, and I'm going to get to the gym, and I'm going to start eating vegetables and drink water, and I'm going to go to the library and finally crack open a book. And then, and only then, if I look a certain way and have a certain mind, God will look at me and say, that a boy. That a boy, I'm going to set you up to this great work. And what you have then, you have created an army, literally of thousands of people who are working on the outside to the neglect of the inside. The care of the mind and body to the neglect of the soul. You get that? The care of the mind and the body to the neglect of the soul. And you'd want to say, what is that? What is that? I can remember as a boy, this is true. I had my Bible picture book in my room. And open up to the book of Daniel, and there was Daniel with a big plate of vegetables and a glass of water, and all his friends had steak and meat and beautiful food. And I was like, there's no way I'm doing veggies. There's no way I'm going to eat veggies. I want some of the other stuff. That was me. I, I can't. I was with Daniel for like two minutes, and that was it. Luke chapter 16, verse 15. What is prized among men is detestable before God. 1 Samuel 16, 7. Do not consider his appearance 
or height. The Lord doesn't look at things and people like that. People look at outward appearance. It's pretty much our world. And you're going to notice that Nebuchadnezzar wasn't interested at all if these young men were filled with integrity, if they had good character, if they had a fantastic work ethic, and they were kind, and they were obedient, and they were well-mannered, and they were pleasant, and they were generous young men who had empathy and who were selfless. No. We just want all this stuff and some of this stuff. See, the characteristics that I just listed, there are many of the qualities that God desires in those who lead his church. And beyond that, listen to your Bible. 1 Corinthians 1.26. Sorry, we have to do this. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify things that are. Okay, God, why did you do that? Here's the answer. You ready? So that no one may boast before him. You see, dare to be a Daniel can be reduced to in-house competition with our peers. And the kind of celebrity Christianity that we're so used to that it's hard to recognize. And look at all the superstars. Not very helpful. And actually, it could be harmful. You're sensible people. You'll have to think those things through. So after this selection, first word, Nebuchadnezzar begins his coercion. And here... We see that he begins this subtle and sometimes not so subtle plan of changing the worldview of these young men. In other words, this is his plan. He's going to change the way these young men think about the world. And he's going to change it, if you would, in the core processors of of, of their minds. So Nebuchadnezzar has beat them on the battlefield. And now he's going to try to reshape them, if you would, in the classroom. Okay, how does he do this? Well, the first thing is isolation. Great tool of the evil one. Get them away from the people of God, right? I mean, we know this. We understand this. The things which would guard them, hem them in, keep them in, keep them in check, they're no longer there. So the place they used to live and the people they used to know, they're gone. So it's none of this anymore. Hey, Daniel. Hey, Mr. Peterson. Hey, Daniel, was that you over there by the tavern throwing those bottles on the street? Was that you? No, Mr. Peterson. That wasn't me. That's right, Daniel. You're a good boy. And by the way, Daniel, I'm watching you. I'm watching you. It's the same as a Christian Christian businessman who travels, a Christian person who takes a vacation, new town, nobody knows you, you're free. Now, how are you going to behave? It's one of the privileges of living in a smaller place. A lot of people know you. Big place, no one knows you. No one knows these guys in Babylon. Isolated. No more public worship. No more instruction from God's word. No more fellowship with God's people. Isolation. Another word, indoctrination. That's verse 4 and verse 5b. They were to be instructed in the language and literature of the Babylonians. Verse 5b, they would be trained for three years. That's harmless enough on one level. After all, language and literature are usually beautiful things. And we would do well to know how cultures live and how cultures think. 
And we would do even better to study cultures and their lines of thinking about God or gods or spirits or avatar or whatever. Because then and only then we can have a healthy dialogue with them and tell them about Jesus and maybe even point out some of the flaws of their religious thinking. But that's not happening here. Here it's something far, far different. Here the indoctrination was this. We do not want you to think like an Israelite anymore. We want you to think like a Babylonian. And every evil empire does this. We want you to think this way, our way. And the deeper issue is this. The godly think different than the ungodly. Right? The godly think different than the ungodly. If you like, the Christian thinks differently than the non-Christian. So when it comes to our time, when it comes to our money, when it comes to public worship, when it comes to life decisions, the Christian thinks differently, at least we're supposed to, than the non-Christian. The godly The Christian views everything as, how will my decision appear to God? What would God want me to do? That's their issue. That's the key for them. That is the source of their answer. The ungodly, the unchristian, how does this appear to me? And they have no reverence for God and no reference to God. How will this appear to me? How will this work for me? And Romans 3.18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. So the writings that they would learn and the language which would include the study of origin and words and the culture, it revealed a completely different worldview from that which they learned from God's word and from God's people. Okay, so you're with me? First, there's the selection. He only picks with his eyes. Then he does the coercion, changes their worldview. And then there's isolation. Let's get them away from what they knew. And then there's indoctrination, new teaching from new teachers. Fifthly, then, reorganization. And the cream of the crop gets the best of food and drink. That's verse 5. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and drink. And so what's the harm in that? What's wrong with good food and good drink? Well, the point here is it wasn't so much about the food and the drink, but it was more about the social gatherings. High living, now listen carefully. High living, constantly being catered to, can very easily master our senses. Think of it this way. When you go on vacation, I suspect most of you come back. If you had a good vacation, most of you come back and you say, I want to live this way forever. Right? I just want to live this way forever. The senses are mastered. And every time Daniel would eat, he would be served, and the good life would just be right before him, and he would be weaned away from the godly life, where the place of the servant and not the place of the master is the way of his master. You understand that? The place of the servant, that's Christian, not the place of the master. So these meals could keep the young men's focus on themselves. And I could easily see this happening. Day one, meal one. This is Daniel. Uh, Please, excuse me. Excuse me. May I please have more salt on my potatoes, please? Day 20, meal 60. Why don't you ever get this right? I need salt. Come on. Okay, let me just ask you this. Have you ever gone to a restaurant and just laid into the wait staff about something about your meal? I paid my money and I don't want, especially if you're out of town. And the first service had a couple people giggling. We were all confessing our sin in this. Reorganization. Daniel, you're no longer a servant. You're free now, Daniel. Daniel, you're an aristocrat. You're somebody. Wow. Finally, finally, assimilation. Last point here. 
Name change. The young men receive a new name for the wrong reason. New name, just like now, new name, new identity. New identity. So when I was writing this out, I couldn't help but to think of a movie. Maybe most of you or some of you know it. It's the movie Yours, Mine, and Ours. Right? This is the 1968 version, not the 2005. This is Lucille Ball and uh, Henry Fonda. And so there was a lady, Lucille Ball, with a great number of children. And she marries a man, Henry Fonda, with a great number of children. And they collide, right? And after the wedding, they're in their house and they're off to school. And there's this classic scene, scene where the young boy, his name is Philip. He's sitting in his class and he signs his name on his math paper, Philip Beersley. He turns the paper in. And his teacher, who happened to be a nun, says, No, dear, your name is Philip Nort. Young Philip replies, I'm Philip Beersley. We all went to church and we were all married. I'm Philip Beersley. In other words, he was taken on his father's name. The nun replies, No, dear, not legally. And we must sign our legal names in school, mustn't we? And then Philip replies, Beersley. Then the class now is in it. They shout back, Nort, Beersley, Nort. Beersley, and there's a fight, and the kid gets a shiner. And mom has to go to school. Cut the scene to the new scene. He's writing his name Philip Nort, Philip Nort. <laughs> mom, what happened? Philip points to the nun and, and says, She started it. She says, I'm not legal. And mom says, Sister, couldn't you call him Philip Beasley? And the nice nun replies, Sorry, <laughs> I'm required to use his legal name. And the mom, and this is where, this is, she makes my point here. This is what the nun says. Listen, I, or this, excuse me, this is what the mother says. Listen, I understand your legal problem, but you see, I'm trying to bring two families together. And this is the first sign I may be succeeding. So I would appreciate it if you would let Philip sign his name, Beersley. To which the nun replies, but legally it's Nort. Yes, the mother says, but emotionally, it's Beersley, Nort, Beersley, Nort, and they're at it. And the little boy says, watch out, mom, or you might get a shine or two. <laughs> you see? Names matter. So let, let's just finish this out. This is, this is, in essence, the end. The kingdom of evil has, has no creativity at all. This is, this is par for the course. As you, as you look at through the whole of the human history and even the history of the scriptures, it's up to its usual tricks. Isolate people. From the people of God. Isolate them. Indoctrinate them. Reorganize the way they think. So they're not servants anymore. No, now they're champions. And they deserve things. And they can enjoy status. They're no longer strangers in the world. But now they're owners. And then assimilate them. Change their location. Change their name. Increase their standing. Now loved ones, we would have to be blind to not think that some of that happens in our culture. Increase their standing. Here's the lesson. The way we think about God, the way we think about ourselves, the way we think about others and the world will determine the way we live. Our worldview is shaped by our view of the world. Does God rule the world or do we rule the world? Is the world God's or is it ours? Huge difference. And if the world is God's, then how we look at things in terms of uh, our nation's presidential election, in terms of economics, in terms of the ebb and flow of our personal life and our response to evil in the world can either become more like Daniel and his friends or less. 
And you never get this sense with Daniel that he's rattled at all by the things that come to him. Why? Well, because Daniel's God is gracious. And Daniel's God is sovereign. So, calm down. Do your duty. Hold to the line. And take great courage no matter what because your God is powerful and your God is sovereign. And therefore, even in the face of difficult circumstances which seem against us, live or die. You can trust him completely. Completely. That's it. We won't have to eat our vegetables until next week. Let's pray together. Thank you for your attention this morning. Our God and Father, the brokenness of society and the world need not discourage us or bring fear into our hearts. Father, please give all of us the grace to anticipate the better country, the heavenly country, which is coming, whose builder and maker is you. And help us to remember, Father, ultimately that we don't need an inspiring example more than we need a saving substitute who would take our punishment, give us his perfection, and promise us that he has his eye on us now and in the real life to come. Now may the Lord bless and keep you. May the Lord cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. For Jesus' sake, amen.